In today's episode, Dave interviews Jim Stahl. Jim is an Emmy-winning writer, a performer, and an actor. Jim's a Second City alum who has written for Steve Martin, Sid Caesar, and Steve Allen. Jim's appeared on Curb Your Enthusiasm, Normal Life, and was a regular on Mork and Mindy. Jim's Second City cast included Harold Ramis and John Belushi, and Jim was a friend and colleague of the late Robin Williams. In this episode, Jim discusses the joys and the challenges of working with Robin. I'm Ian Foley, and this is ADD Comedy. I got mad. I was living in the state of denial for a while. Not denial, but anger. Uh, because I felt like, what the fuck? You, you're so positive. We've started, by the way. You, you're so positive and you're such a mentor to so many. Yeah. And I guess the tragedy of the whole thing is how, how tortured he was. And yet the spirit, the human spirit says, keep getting out there, keep standing in front of people, keep encouraging people, keep doing that, even though you may be um, going through agony that we will never know. Mm-hmm. How is it that the human spirit is still able to say, you are placed on this planet to share this, you are placed on this planet to shine? He's saying that, and then he goes and, and turns his light out. I hear that, and, and I, we know that Robin had substance abuse issues. Um, he, I mean, going back to my days with him at the comedy store, uh, the statute of limitations is up, so I can admit, uh, yeah, there were people selling cocaine. And, right. But we were. It was. It was as if back then he was like, well, you're supposed to do that. Right. So you finally realize maybe Robin's right. Maybe cocaine is God's way of telling you you have too much money. But then it wasn't. The, those drugs, it was actually alcohol that caused him problems. And then he was depressed, yes. And he had issues with his failed marriages, yes. And he was getting help. But then combined on top of all of this was the diagnosis that he had. I believe it's Parkinson's yes. disease. Yes. The uh, Michael J. Fox um, uh, it's funny, like the Lou Gehrig disease, the Michael J. Fox disease, but Michael J. Fox is the most famous example of that. Now, Robin, on top of all the depression, gets diagnosed, and they finally come in and they say to him, okay, here's the diagnosis, you've got this. So on top, on top, on top. But I hear what you're saying, and I agree. I go, he held us up and helped us and made so many people feel so good for so long we would have held him up. We would have carried him. We would have been there for him. So that's why it makes you almost cry when you think about what we lost. In the same year that we lost uh, Harold Ramis, who had more stories to tell. Fred Kaz. Fred Kaz, who was such a dear heart and such a creative genius. Jay Leggett. Do you know know Jay? Yeah, Jay Leggett. I mean... It's like, yow. It, Fred, I think Fred was done. I just had a feeling. He was like, I've had enough. I, I fought the good fight. Right. Um, I'm at peace. Um, I talked briefly to David Rashi, mm-hmm. who said, you know, I actually talked about the meaning of life with Fred. Right. And he he was very peaceful. He was very 
very calm. And, and I think about that and I go, wow, oh, leave it to Fred. Uh, Fred was my favorite Fred I moment. just want to say, for those uninitiated, uh, Fred was the virtuoso uh, piano player who worked at Second City. Yes. Fred uh, took over for, is it Bill Matthew? Yeah. Mathau. Ma Mathai. 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 It's, it's, it's spelled Mathau, but right. I thought he pronounces it Matthew. So yeah, Bill. but he also called himself something else. Yes. Because he's, he, he was a, in the Sufi yeah. religion. Yeah. Um, so he was essentially between Bill and Fred when you go to an improv show and you hear somebody playing in the background or or as Fred would have it and Bill was so integral to the to the ensemble that's because of Fred. Yes and and uh Fred's uh like supportive creative spirit just anchored the whole I want to say the hipness factor of Second City for all those years. But Fred, you know, the resident, he was like the, the, the re resident uh, hipster um, who uh, never left that area, that era. Um, but Fred, uh, I guess he was there almost from the beginning. I mean, it, he was probably there year two. Yeah. Because Bill didn't want to do it or had other things and he, and he brought Fred in and mm -hmm. Fred would be there and then take a break and be there. But he was there all those decades. Well, I, I remember it, it, he was like a, 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 the last beatnik. To me, Fred was the last beatnik. But he would give you notes in these lovely cryptic ways. Um, you were talking about David Rashi. That that was what brought you. That I, oh, I took a little I, I, took a little I made a left turn. Yeah. So, but, I, I made you make a left turn. Uh, but David uh, re reinforced to me how spiritual Fred was. Besides being a music genius, um, Fred would come up with songs for the show and we would give him suggestions and he would write these wonderful things and then we'd get up and perform them. Um, usually the shows in the like late 60s, like 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, ended on a, on a song, a big Fred song. Uh, there may be other pieces. We worked with Fred on, on I Hate Liver. Yeah, Liver Makes uh, Me Quiver. Liver Makes Me Quiver. Mm -hmm. um, and I went back after I had left Second City, and I had my son with me. My wife and I were there seeing, might have been the reunion show, and, and Derek was a baby. Mm-hmm. Fred looks at him and he goes, yeah. You know, he, had his, he would always tilt his head because he, he tilted his head. And he had on that captain's right, that captain's uh, The Greek hat. fisherman's hat. Looked like Captain Antonio, that mm -hmm. kind of Captain Antonio. But no, his was dark. His was dark, like a fisherman. And mm -hmm. he goes, yeah. That is the meaning of the afterlife. And you go, two, three, four. And you go, well, he's right. Because yeah. when I'm gone, he's... He's after me. <laughs> uh, but I would, when, when I would do a show there and he was, uh, you know, the rare times that, that he would be uh, in the corner playing um, a company, being part, there's, there's got to be another word for what it was that he did. Um, he I, support. Support. He was support, but he was, but he was just like everybody else. So when we do the shows down at the pier at Santa Monica, he played those shows. And that's when I remember playing with him a lot. You, you did those, right? Yes, yes. And I well, see, he was also... Uh, our piano player with the Spolin players. Ah. Uh, so uh, up until he finally said, I'm just too weak. 
right. I'm, I'm going to have to be on the boat. Uh, his boat, not yeah. the boat in heaven, but uh, yeah, the boat. This boat. The boat. <laughs> it's not like, I've got to go to the big boat. But now Fred, what was so wonderful, Fred, I remember there'd be nights when uh, you knew you were screwing up on stage because he might play something. Uh, I, it, was, it would be very subtle. Oh, or maybe the lights would go out, and he would play, and you went like, "Oh gosh, I was right, right. cartoony." <laughs> but I remember a night when, like, um, uh, David Rashi and maybe Tino and I we were going to do this improvisation, or maybe it was Betty Thomas and I. And I said to Fred, "Ah, oh, Fred, I don't know what we're going to do in this scene. Could you, could you start us out? Could you support us?" And uh, it, it was Betty Thomas and I, and it was husband and wife thing. And like she said a line, and then I waited, and I listened for Fred play something. And I went, oh, I think I'll go, I'll make a different choice. And then I said something, and then he played a little something else, and then she made a different, a fun choice. And then we were going, and, we were, and Fred was supportive, and, and then finally, I, I, in the corner of my eye, I saw him get up off the piano bench and trying to just go walk away. Like, okay, kids, I primed the pump. Go. <laughs> he, uh, when I would think about scenes that I would do that he would be behind, I would go, oh, I really did a good job in that scene. And I would talk about it. You know, and somebody would go, you didn't do a good job. Fred led you into that. And I go, what? God damn it, he did. He really did. But there's the, what I, one of the things that I learned at Second City is listening. But listening on a deep tissue level, listening, you're listening on one level, but you're also listening on another level. And what Fred would do was get to that jazz level, get to that level so that you're subdermally being inspired and moved. Yes, for example, if, you know, if you said something, I remember, I remember the moment, like, I said something to her, like, uh, uh, at, the, at the party, we're talking about the party or something, and I, you were flirting with me. I wasn't flirting. I was having a good time, you know, something like that. And then Fred played some kind of, dun, 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 like, like, uh oh, here's a dramatic <laughs> moment, and forced us to take a beat. Because you know how as improvisers, there's no pauses, unless you want one. You know what I mean? Like, unless you're making that pause part of what it is that you're doing. But most of the time, improvising is like with Robin Williams. It's like, right, right. Everyone's fighting to get a line in. Oh, that's right, right. But you know what? Lately, 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 what I teach is take that pause to be more dramatic because, and let the shit breathe. Because I think what ends up happening is it's exactly what you said. People are rushing in like, I got to get my line in. I got to get my line in. I got to be like, who the fuck wants to watch that? You know what I mean? That's the way I feel about it. Right. Now, watching somebody like Robin, where you would go after a show, you would go, well, I don't know what just happened. Because he wasn't part of this. It, it was like he wasn't part of this world. It was so much fun to those early years when he first arrived from San Francisco. And um, he was, uh, I guess he was, he had just married Valerie. His first wife? His first wife. Because mm -hmm. he had been living with Elaine Boozler, the stand-up comedian, very funny gal. Yeah, very funny. In San Francisco. And he came home one day and he said to uh, Elaine, oh, I'm, I'm moving out. Uh, what? In, uh, you know, you're breaking up? Why? What? I'm getting married. <laughs> True story. And, 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 and so Elaine, Elaine said to me, he's just like, how, how does that happen? You know, so Robin, you know, ceremony, you know, classic San Francisco ceremony, he got married. And then, you know, outgrew San Francisco, came to L.A. and was and uh, got involved. You know, he was doing 
doing stand-up, doing improv stuff, wherever he could. I had left Second City with Tino and Sana and Jim Fisher, and we called ourselves the graduates. And we had just worked our butts off for the two preceding years. In LA. In Chicago. We started in Chicago. In Chicago mm-hmm. To take Second City-type material that we had done, improvisations that we had done, new material that we had written, and instead of making it completely fourth wall sketch style theater, we said, how can we do sketch in a nightclub Mm -hmm. and follow a stand-up comic and then have a stand-up comic follow us? Right. Now, part of that was there was this character in Chicago, um, uh, LaShawn, Chuck LaShawn? Chuck LaShawn, who had a music company. He was a drummer. But he wanted to be a manager, and he saw us performing at Orphan's Pub. Sure. On Lincoln. <laughs> On Lincoln. Is it still there? I don't know. Oh, God. So <clears throat> he saw us, and he said, guys, I think you guys have a lot of talent. I think you're missing an opportunity. I see you guys playing clubs. I see you guys at Mr. Kelly's one day. Right. I see you. But uh, you, classic have to, nightclub. you have to change what you're doing and, and bring it in. You guys have to be a three-person like a like a comedy duo. And we talked about how to be presentational, and we did some tricks. And one of the first things we did was we brought a tape recorder, snuck it on stage, and we taped the performance. We take, went back to the rooms or home or whatever, and we listened. Mm-hmm. And if, there wasn't, if it didn't go set up, laugh, set up, laugh, it got cut. And things were shortened. And then the second thing we did was we found ways to incorporate the audience. And to be honest, like, look, there's a nightclub audience. Right. So we might ask somebody a question, like, what are you more afraid of? The dentist? Dentists or spiders? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, dentist. All right, we take you to a dentist's office, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, or we would find if there was a scene, if there was a way, like they do on Saturday Night Live now, to make the audience a member of the scene, like, all right, welcome. Tonight's lecture, we right. have Professor So-and-so. Well, Second City did a lot of that with PTA. Yes, and, yes. Right. absolutely. And then there were times when the three of us, we had the mics, and uh, we would almost do it like talking to each other, stand-up kind of thing. But then there were times we, we did scenes. You know, we would just say, you know, we take you to Dracula's castle, and right. you had to play the scene. And we had nightmares, nightmares with microphones, because back then they didn't have elaborate miking systems and stuff. Sometimes we would have to hold oh, a sure. big, big microphone, and you're trying to act, mm-hmm. and we had to learn to switch hands. Mm-hmm. And Chuck was wonderful with that, working with that, with us. We wanted, we did the college circuit, we did the Tonight Show, we did perform in Mr. Kelly's before mm-hmm. it closed in Chicago, and so we came out. We flipped a coin between going to New York or L.A. You just flipped a coin. Yeah. We, we had done a show called The First Five Days um, in Chicago for NBC, the NBC affiliate. W-M-M-U. And it won an Emmy. Wow. In, Wait, was this a one-off or was this? Yes. It was just a one show. It was a one show in 1985. And Zvi, people did that. Zvi Shubin, mm-hmm. so Fisher to me was amazing. Fisher had walked into NBC mm-hmm. and he pitched this idea. He right. said, uh, what about um, a look at uh, 1985, the new year, based on the first five days of the year? Mm-hmm. Here's what you can expect. And we'll do a one-hour special. And uh, 
And Zvi was like, hmm. And then he said to him, and by the way, there's this company that wants us to do advertisement. They'll be the sponsor, mm-hmm. Plywood, Minnesota. Sure. And he goes, oh, okay. <laughs> so lo and behold, we got- I'm sorry, I, I, I just got, got to land in Plywood, Minnesota. Just, I haven't thought about them in so long. Plywood, Pl- Plywood Rudy, Minnesota. I forget what, what Rudy's last name is. Yeah, was, yeah, um, yeah. Plywood, Plywood, Minnesota. Minnesota. We're going back. Right. So, <laughs> Ply, so Plywood, Minnesota was our sponsor. It was an hour show. And we got news crew cameramen. I didn't mm-hmm. realize it at the time. And we did this show. And, and like one of the scenes was, uh, I remember being up on the Ravenswood L in Chicago. And, and we said, well, uh, to increase uh, ridership on the L, uh, we're turning the Ravenswood L into an amusement ride. <laughs> You know, and so, and then we heard sound effects of that, like a like like a uh, roller coaster going up. And then, when the L arrives, and then it, there was like a pigeon walking, and then they had put that to music, exotic animals, you know, see exotic animals, da, da, da. and then you hear the, and then when we get on the, the the L, and then when the L takes off, he he raked the camera a little bit, so we go wee. <laughs> you know, um, and there were all manner of silly things um, that you wrote ahead of time. That of we course. wrote ahead of time. Then mm-hmm. we shot them and won an Emmy. And, and we we asked Zvi, well, uh, who how did was how was it voted on? And he said, well, the Emmy committee for for this this year was in Los Angeles, was on the West Coast. So we went, oh, the West Coast people seem to like our Got sense it. of humor. Got so we it. went, maybe we should go there. Right. So we came here. Uh, how long did Jim last here? How long did play? Jim last? Because Jim isn't here. Is Jim here? Uh, Fisher? I th- yeah, I think he's in Chicago, isn't he? he? Jimmy is back in Indiana. Indiana, that's right. And right. With, retired with his wife, mm-hmm. Pat. Uh, flying his plane. Retired. Yeah. People retired, Jim. People retire. What the <laughs> hell was he thinking? People retire. He, yeah, he hung up his improvisational shtick and... But he was uh, writing, too. Yeah, so he and I, yeah, we wrote for many, many, many years together. Did, and you wrote together here, or did he yeah. Did he do... Yeah, this is before those we, times. Yeah, so, oh, so we're, we were forming that. here, so we get... Right. Mitzi Shore sees us at the Comedy Store. Her oh, comedy you guys store. are wonderful. Mm-hmm. So we're at the Comedy Store. Robin sees us performing at Westwood, and he comes running up to me after the show. And, oh, have a sister, all the morning. and he's improvising with me. Right. And, I, and right from my first meeting, I go, who is this guy? Right. Oh, my God. Was it too like, much, or was it, were you just, because a lot of times when people come up to me and they go, I'm like, all right, pull it back, pull it back, pull it back. I was, I was, I was thrown. Mm-hmm. Um, but then his enthusiasm was so infectious that you go, oh, okay. Right. Um, there's a picture of him and I uh, doing an improvisation based around one of the characters I had created, this drunken guy. And one of the lines I said in the sketch was, oh, I, I, it's my fault, I, I'm a bum, I'm no damn good, I hurt people. You know, being, being self-deprecating and being feeling sorry for himself. Robin loved that. He and I, he, any chance he got, if we were improvising, he, we would slip into the drunk characters. But that line was improvised on Work and Mindy. <laughs> and I remember thinking, what? It was like he, 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 maybe he felt like he had done it so many times with me that he owned it. He was, he was, he was 
accused of doing that, wasn't he? A number of yes. times. Yes. And looking back, I remember people saying, oh, Robin took my line too right. And I remember thinking, oh, that's that's not right, you know. And then I, I was watching someone's act, and then I saw Robin get up, and Robin did one of the guys, a piece of one of the guy's bits. And I went, oh, I guess that is sort of a sweet steal. And the comic came up to me and said, yeah, Robin took my bit, but God damn it, that pastor did it better than I do. But see, he would put a different twist on it. Right. Or he would come at it from a different way. But, but stand-ups are so proprietary, and I think improvisers are less, because it's certainly coming from Second City, where you go, the minute the line comes out of my mouth, it's not mine anymore. It's ours. We get to do this together. Yeah, well, yeah, there were some lines, some bits, some things that became, I don't want, I want to say free. Public domain. <laughs> Public domain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, you know, a line like, thank you very much. Uh, we'll be here all week. Remember yeah, to take right, the waitress, exactly. whatever that joke. Right. But there were some things uh, like, uh, who, we had a bullhorn. We had a shtick with Fisher with a bullhorn. I'm trying to remember the comic who uh, came up to us, hey, where'd you get that bullhorn? I want to get one of those. And he proceeded to make like 90% of his act using the bullhorn and doing shtick like, if you're having trouble at the supermarket and people are being slow in line, just take out Mr. Bullhorn, you know. And I remember thinking, yeah, well, thank you very much. And we had more places to go with this. Right, right. Who did that happen to? um, Wait, didn't that happen to... Oh, boy, I'm going to be careful with this. Tim Conway did that thing where he was walking on his knees and he put shoes on his knees and he played the midget guy. Dorf. Dorf. Yeah. There was a Second City guy who performed that in front of him and then he took it. And I'll oh. tell you the guy's name after. But I'm pretty, he, it was one of these things where you go, he, it was, he was like, Jesus Christ, that's mine. And he was there. Tim Conway was there. Now, who owns that bit? Who owns that now, bit? That's a Nobody cool thing. That's it. a cool thing because um, Alan Shearman, right, who did all Coca-Cola Grande, did that before Tim Conway. Wait, are, are you saying is, that's not the Hello Mono Hello Father guy? No, no, no. Alan, Alan uh, Shearman. Alan, that's Shearman. Alan Shearman. Got it. This Alan is Shearman. Alan Shearman. Uh-huh. A very excellent uh, from, from Britain. Uh, physical actor uh, mm-hmm. married to Anna Matthias mm-hmm. uh, and he did that character and you know on the knees and, mm-hmm. and the funny thing blah, blah, before Tim Conway in Got his it. show uh-huh. now knowing Alan I guarantee you that this is something from almost like Commedia dell'arte or, right. or vaudeville or something mm-hmm. because someone had to make the prop the clever putting the shoe down there and, the, and how you get the thing and looking short and right. that sort of theatrics. So, But Robin, was what he was amazing to me was, A, he was very, very smart. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you could not underestimate his intelligence. Which helps so much. It makes him fast. Right. Uh, he and was, having, and also, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, but it's also like being able to grab material from all parts of his brain 
And and it and I think that that is so lost on so many writers and improvisers and stand-ups we, who tend to live in this little world where you go, what are you reading right now? And somebody will say, well, I'm reading this book on acting. All right, don't. Read a book on the Civil War. Read a book on how shelves are made. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there were so many people that I know where you would go, how does your brain work? You're able to grab all this shit from all over. The comparison in my mind was always Robin and Harold Ramis, mm-hmm. that there was a similarity there of a, of a brilliance of intelligence quotient, that they had a wide range of jamming information from wonderful, different, varied places, and Harold and Robin could just call them up. Right. And the other difference was Robin had an incredible memory. Um, he, you would say something to him once, and it's almost like it's, it's, it's tape recorded in his brain that he could call it up. Robin, uh, I remember once we were out late partying and we had we came in uh, from work and uh, they said, uh, oh, we've rewritten all of Act Two. Mm-hmm. So here's the new pages. Did you get them yesterday to study your lines? I, the responsible ones, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I got my... Robin, who you practically had to, like, bring in a on a gurney, you know, after partying all night. Uh, Let me look at it. So we were going to run it in front of the network and the studio for notes and everything. So Robin, he gets the script, reads it, reads it. And then he handed it to Marty, uh, Marty Nedboy. I think that was his name. Silly Marty. And and Marty, uh, okay, Run it with me, cue me, and then uh, maybe just once. Now, maybe 15 minutes have gone by. We go out, and he performed it. And I go, what? <laughs> I, I think looking at that, I wonder if there's an OCD sort of thing with that, where where I, I don't know much about OCD, but I, I think that is there something where you just look at something and you hold on to it and you're, you're you, and, and it's like, did I turn the stove off? Have I done this? Like all these elements that you have that stick in your head in a certain place that you hold on to it. Because it see, always seemed to me that his brain worked obviously in a very different fashion than... And my neighbor, who's a doctor of psychology, had said he was talking to colleagues who thought that Robin expressed all the classic symptoms of someone who is on the Asperger's autism spectrum. So Asperger's is on the autism spectrum uh, or scale, whatever they call it. Mm -hmm. And there's an aspect of Asperger's which is very, very, very bright people, Mm -hmm. very intelligent people, have a part of their makeup, their brain, that is so bright. It's it's as if they're so intelligent, there's no room for really good social skills. Right. And there are some Asperger's people who, well, the good example is uh, Big Bang Theory, the the, the Sheldon character. Mm -hmm. Is, Is that sarcasm? You know? Or they can't read a face, or, or there's a, a lack of intimacy, or they don't know how to express intimacy and mm-hmm. emotion. Right. And so I'm sure someone else knows better than we do, but the brilliance that he had and the quickness right. is what we all remember. He, he was, it's funny seeing that picture 
on Facebook of him from wrestling in high school. He was on the wrestling team. I see it. And, you know, a little skinny guy wrestling. Right. And to me, that typified the tenacity. And because if you've known anybody in high school who wrestled, they would run all day and then they would be exhausted. And they'd go wrestle and they'd run some more. And right. And they do this all week, week right. after week. And it's like, how exhausting is that? And I remember once he was getting in shape and I was at the gym, I was getting in shape. I don't know how we got, like we were goofing around backstage at the comedy stars, like we pretend we're wrestling. He's all right, I'm gonna wrestle you. He did a takedown on me and got me in a scissors with his leg. I thought he was gonna kill me. I'm like, I can't He was incredibly strong. And then he played a wrestling coach in Garp. Yes. That was after you, that you'd known him during that time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, see, he, no, he was done with Mark. He was done with Mark for, for that one because they were talking about, you know, they had read the book and they were, there was interest in the. In Did you read the book? Yes. I love that book. I found the book so sad. Yes. On so many levels. Yes. And the book was so complex, the whole thing with the circus. Yes. And thing. I could see how it appealed to Robin because there was this other little world. But the sadness of the story where it starts out with the Glenn Close character. Yes. It's also him so, being tossed in the air as a child, I think. That's the first image. I think I remember that. The very well, first I just remember image. that. I mean, I re- vividly the beginning of this war right. hero person in the hospital who can't say anything but garp. Right. And she has sex with this guy. I went, what? <laughs> and that's at the start of the movie? Right. Right. <laughs> and you also look at John Lithgow in that movie and how tragic and awesome and loyal and, and like that, the world according to Garp, that was what it was called, the world according to Garp. And that, it wasn't just called Garp, it was called the world according to Garp. And to look at that world. And, and what I love about that movie and I also love about so, much, so many of John Irving's books is these are real people doing things. These are people who have idiosync- who are who are idiosyncratically themselves. These are people that you look at and they're looking at the world in a very different way. There's 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 an ethics that they have, a morality that they have, but there's also a humanity that they have. And those I am driven towards those characters mm-hmm. so strongly mm-hmm. and quirky. If you want to call them quirky, but to look at all that. So then, you do you watch Orange is the New Black? I haven't started it yet. I haven't started it. Um, I I watch it because my wife watches it. Mm-hmm. She speeds watch. So I, by default, I'm in the room. And I get hooked on it. It's like, more like a soap opera. Right. I think they did themselves a disservice by saying it's a comedy. Mm-hmm. They should have just said it's a drama. It, right. It might have comedy comic moments. But people... Uh, are expecting a black comedy? It's right. not. It's well, not like a soap opera. It's the same thing with Nurse Jackie. Yes. Nurse Jackie's called a comedy, I believe. Yes. Uh, in Nurse Jackie, there's moments of triumph. Right. That that you could claim. Okay, I recognize that in comedy. Right. But in in this Orange Is the New Black, it's it's about exploring all these women. But I digress. To me, I was just thinking about Garp, and you said the world according to Garp, and I think about it. And Garp, to me is the guy on the bed, the soldier, who says Garp, and he was injured, and yet he somehow managed to father a child, a boy, and there's the woman. It's, I feel like it's his vision of the world, mm-hmm. which is so tragically reflected in the Got sun it. and the thing. It's like, and wow. You talk about afterlife. Yes. <laughs> that's, yes. That's, your, that's the clear afterlife that Fred was talking about. 
Uh, I, uh, that movie, that movie changed me in a number of ways. One way is just looking at Lithgow's character, who I forgot what her name was. In that, uh, he played a trans, transgender, transsexual. I can't remember. I don't remember that. He played. He was the former football player who was essentially Glenn Close's uh, bodyguard, uh-huh. and he was once on a football team, oh. and he was a transgender woman in the movie. Uh-oh. Wow, and I forgot that part. Uh, it, 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 I mean, the, just, the movie was all over the. I remember the the wife, Garp's wife, having an affair with one of the students or something like that. No, no, with the guy um, worked at the supermarket or something. Right. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember. And he was anyway. And when she was blowing him in the car in the parking lot, and and the, the Garp character would come down. In the car and just turn the lights t- off and float into the garage. Float into the float into the driveway. Yeah. And she float and he floated into the driveway and it killed their son. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it wasn't that was not a comedy, yeah. but it was a movie about perseverance. Because if you notice, if you remember, there was one scene in that movie where they're looking to buy the house, and while they're lo- outside looking to buy the house, a plane crashes in the house, and the guy comes out of the plane. It's like, can I use your phone? And uh, and the realtor is like, oh, I'm terribly sorry. This right. is horrible. He goes, no, I'll take it. I'll take it. Because if it happened once, it's not going to happen again. And for me, that whole movie was just about... Was for a- someone like Garp, it probably will. <laughs> right. Exactly. exactly. For him. Exactly. The world according to Garp. Right, right. I think all Garp. of us, there's a little bit of Garp, but we feel like each day, you know, like, why did I get a parking ticket? Right. What are the odds of that? Do you really think that? I mean, for me, I feel like it does, <laughs> shit's going to happen anyway to everybody. I mean, you've been out here a really long time. So you, you, there, when, when people look at the world going, why did this happen to me? Instead of saying, well, that happened to me. I need to move on. I get to move on. Because it seems like you've had a bunch of careers here. Do you feel that way? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember when I first started, when I first thought... You moved out right, what year? What year did you move out? I moved here in the, the bicentennial summer, 76. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I very early at college, at the University of Illinois, I remember talking to my about-to-be first wife, yeah. Champagne or circle? Uh, champagne. Uh-huh. If, if I ever go into show business, I want to do it in such a way that I can make my own work. And that philosophy, so oh, how do you make your own work? Well, at the time, there was places like you know, Second City, or you could do nightclubs, you could create, you could write something, and then perform it and get paid. Or you could say, I have an idea for a show, I want to act in it. Uh, and that's exactly what we did with the first five days. Or you'd say, back in Chicago, they, they had things, these industrial shows. And you could say, working go to corporate. a working corporate, you go, right. go to a company and say, hey, we'll be your entertainment and we'll train the people right way, wrong way or whatever it is. And we'll write it and perform it. Right. So that carried over. So sometimes I would, we would be total writer performers when we first started. And then it, we, it kind of shifted. It split. Uh, William Morris, they said, well, can you write for other people? Mm-hmm. And we went, well, yeah. I, <laughs> don't give them our best stuff, though. Right. I was thinking that was, like, stupid. So then there was, like, you went, there was, like, a writing thing. And then I got involved just as an actor, as, like, an acting thing. Out here. Yeah, out here. Uh-huh. So. Like, but you, you've done a lot of writing. Yes. And hosting. Yes. Uh, I had my own show, Laugh Tracks. Right. 
where I first met Howie Mandel. Mm -hmm. And I did, uh, I was on, uh, oh, let's see, shows like, I was a regular on Mork and Mindy, um, uh, Modern, uh, let's see, um, Normal Life. Normal Life. Uh, there was a bean, something Good Night Bean Town yeah, with right. uh, Marriott Hartley. Um, there was all manner of pilots and you know guest appearances. Are I you was, still doing that? A little bit, but not mm -hmm. as much. It's like as you age out, so then I have to I have to grow into being a grandfather. Right, the grandfather. So I'm, so I'm working on what look is that supposed to be? Or maybe I'm a senator. I don't know. I think you're a senator. I'm a senator <laughs> have you played a senator? I, I bet doctors. You I played doctor, doctor. I doctor, played a lot of doc, a lot of dentists. Right, dentists. I would dentists. imagine. Yeah. I was a boss on um, uh, King of Queens. I mm -hmm. was I was uh, James' uh, boss, mm -hmm. uh, which was fun. So I, I guess a boss and somebody who like you're I'm intimidating. Going back to you were what you you were talking about at University of Illinois, and I've talked about it a lot on the show, and and that is getting paid to be who you are. Because that's really what we do. When you say, you know, the, the perseverance is also about, you know, there, I want to keep working. And if I want to keep working, then I've got to keep the business open called David Rosowski. That business needs to keep open. How is it that we can, we can um, uh, diversify and still stay, say, stay in the same industry? And yes. what is it that needs to happen in right. order for that to work? Right. And I think... What that requires is what I learned at Second City, and I've learned, you know, having run Second City. It's the idea of going. This is. There's so much more to the to work than that little thing called uh, television or that little thing called movies. There's so much more in that. Now you, because I looked at it as if you really look at it as I want to be creative, right? And I want to perform. So we also did radio. Mm -hmm. And we perform, whether it's commercials or writing commercials and then performing them. Um, but now, my gosh, with the Internet. Oh, wow. I want to make something. And then and you put it up and then you get instant fame, hopefully. And then you say, well, hey, did you like that? Come and hire me. Right. You know, I'll, I'll work on your team. Do you do you do do you do that? I've done a little bit of it, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Funny or Die with Fred Willard. I right. still perform with Fred Willard's sketch group. We have a show coming up on Wednesday. Awesome. Where's that? At uh, the training center, Second City. Oh, you're doing that. Great. Great. Um, Great. And uh, uh, what else? Uh, I still do uh, animation. I'm working on, um, I'm working on a, a fun, silly uh, animation based on two characters that are zonkeys. A zonkey is half zebra, half donkey. <laughs> <laughs> and Andrew Austin and I, we, we met on Bobby's World mm -hmm. at, at working at Film Roman, and we decided, you know, we're tired of doing politically correct stuff. Let's just bring back Tiny Toons, Animaniacs, and just have fun and be silly. Right. And then <clears throat> we, we thought, instead of pitching it, why don't we try something different? So we decided to make a, a game, the video, make an iPhone, iPad game that features the characters in some kind of silliness to get exposure and we have a team of animators in Romania we're almost done we'll launch in a month we'll be on the iPhone and uh, and then it's like we'll see what happens 
I've never done anything as as outrageous as that. It sounds that part of that is is this is saying we're going to see what happens. That's the huge thing that you just said. We're going to see what happens, and to say okay, we want to obviously you want to make money on it. You want it to be something that lingers, that lasts a very long time. You want it to have legs, roots, whatever the fuck you want to do. But a, a major part of what it is that you're saying is let's try this and let's do this and let's see what happens. Right. <clears throat> And again, instead of saying my career has to look like this, because we've been doing this for so long, and yes. realize whatever it is that you think it is that is what you think is going to happen is not going to happen. Because I think we learned very early on, you cannot sit at home by the phone. See, back then we had landlines. Now <laughs> you can't sit at Starbucks with your cell phone right. and just wait for the agent to call you and say. Okay, I have an audition or I have a job for you. Right. I have an interview. You have to get out. And what was fun about those early days, and it, again, I, uh, I come all the way back to Robin, was being at the comedy store or the improv, because we were performing, doing stand-up, someone could hire us and say, oh, we'll pay you a, bu- a pocket, a bunch of money to perform in Reno. Mm-hmm. Great. And we have a bunch of money. Then we come back and we have new material. And then we could... Uh, showcase for a show like Merv Griffin, and he'll say, yeah, come on, do a bit on my show, I'll pay you a bunch of money. And then people see us, and then we could go back to the comedy store, and we could showcase, someone says, well, so-and-so is doing a a variety show, you know, Mary Tyler Tyler Moore is doing Mm -hmm. a television variety show, we're looking Mm -hmm. for people, and we would showcase with everybody else, and they would say, okay, we like you guys. You could either write on it or perform or do a bit. And or, and this was my other favorite thing was, you'd be talking to the other comics, other performers. Hey, did you hear? Right. So-and-so is doing a pilot, and uh, they're going to have auditions next week. So we'd call our agents, you know. Or you'd hear, hey, did you hear? Tim Thomerson got a development deal. They're looking for writers. Right. Okay, and I call you and submit my script. So that was the other thing, that networking. Right. That networking. It's thing. so different now. It's like, it, it's like you might as well talk about... Pony Express and shit like that, because it seems to me that. Uh, well, I, I, I've mentioned. I, are you are you are you going to that place of, because we don't meet in rooms anymore. No, no, we no. We meet online on Facebook. No, no, no. Because for me, I feel like the you know the the, the toothpaste is out of the tube. There's nothing we can do about that. And I also I'm not one of those guys to stand on you know outside my apartment and yell get off my lawn. I'm very close to that, but I'm not that. Uh, uh, what I, I feel that we live in a golden time of access, promotion, publicity, inspiration, research, and, uh, and production. The idea of saying, what is it that you want to do? Like you connected with people in Romania. You've never been to Romania, I'm assuming. You nope. don't know those people. Nope. You've never been in their facility. <laughs> but you trust a guy or a lady who knows a person or a lady, right. a guy who does that. And you go, this is how it works. Absolutely. Because I, I look at back in Chicago when we were all uh, starting out in the olden days. They had a, this, this magazine, Chicago Unlimited Okay. See you, and you could put an ad about yourself in right, there. right. And so someone could look at your picture, and they could go, "Oh, I could see that age range or something." And maybe you'd list what you did, or whether you do commercial, or whatever, and they might bring you in and call you. Now you have that internet. Right. You did your funny bit, and if somebody's interesting or interest, you just say, "Go to this place. Yep. Go, go look at me at uh, at Hulu or wherever you want to post it or uh, on Facebook." And 
have a secret code to get in or see it or whatever. And then boom, you can see it. Right. Um, and then that's your, your calling card. Hollywood Directory now, not Hollywood Directory. What's the act? What's the actors' yeah. book? Yeah, uh, I know what you're talking about. The yeah. actors you used to want to get your picture. Yeah, in but you're, now yeah. it's like why? You right. know, you, oh, so much of that is like some guy delivered the yellow pages to me yesterday, and I was like, "Don't bother. Why you, do people have this? What is this?" I I'm there on that. <laughs> the other thing is, like, uh, if you have a, a commercial agent or, or acting agent. You don't even have to put your name in a book somewhere. All they have to do is go to your agent's site, click on your name, and right. boom, here comes this. And actors now, through the guilds, are posting their reel. Yep. They have samples of things that they do. But I love the people who are enterprising, and they grab their friend with a camera, and they go say, hey, let's, let's do something. I, uh, this year, I did three of those. I did three uh, Kickstarter things that all got funded. And we're opening one up, we're premiering it on the 15th, where got a bunch of people together, people who had these high-definition high Canon cameras. I did three of those lately, and they've all, they're all beautiful, they're all edited, they're edited on a computer, like my computer, your computer. Like, what's happening? And so anybody that's sitting around, I, would, I was listening to somebody who was talking about a friend who said, um... Yeah, great. There's no parts for a 50-year-old woman anymore. There's just no parts anymore. There's no parts for any. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. And I want to go, fucking stop it. You've yeah. got to stop it. Yeah. The truth is, uh, a writer out there, if they were smart, they would write a screenplay that features 50-year-old women <laughs> because I guarantee you there are women who are aging who the whole world knows their name. Right. And they're being underused. Right. And if you write a quality script, they will, they will jump on board, and suddenly this thing is going to take off. Well, if you look at the people that, if I look at the people, I'm 55, and I look at the people that, uh, that are maybe five years older than me, the women that are five years older than me, like Glenn Close, uh, Sally Fields, uh, you know, at least five years older than me, uh, Glenn Close, Sally Fields, all these older women... Like, what the fuck are they doing now? What's Betty Thomas doing now? Directing. Right. But to, to look to the Glenn Close, she did a, a wonderful turn in, is it Guardians of the Galaxy? Is she a character? Oh, she's in that? She, or, no, I, or, or I'm confusing my movies with the previews. But she, she plays uh, like a, a senator or something character. And I went like, yes, she can be like an authority figure. Is it? Thing. And she's popping up. And but isn't it interesting that when, when uh, you were at Second City, what years? I was there like from 71 to 74, 5. Okay. Yeah. So in that time, you look at the roles that women played in that time. And there was a four and two, four men, two women? Five and two. Five and two. Look at that. Five and two. Right. Right. And what were the women playing? Moms, wives. Girlfriends, Nuns, girlfriends, nurses, yeah. and now, oh my are, God! The truth be told, there was this attitude. You, you women would, are not funny. Well, you you work with Bernie and Dell, yes. or you work with Bernie and Dell, yeah. Bernie, yeah. Bernie Sons and Dell Close, okay, right. And and there was this. There was still. I mean, um, Joan Rivers talks about it to this day that there was this perception back then. That oh women aren't funny they can't be funny so they'll be the straight person you know, the straight woman 
uh, set up the guy, be the love interest, uh, be the mean bitchy boss or right. something. The guy gets the laugh. The guy does the physical economy, he dies the thing. And I thought, wow, there's a burden. There's a hurdle for them. But we had five and two. Who were the women? Um, it was... Eugenie? Uh, uh, I, I was in and out of, of the two casts. So it would be uh, Eugenie Ross Lemming. Right. Anne Ryerson. Lovely. Uh, then I was with uh, Harold, Jim Fisher, uh, Brian Murray, and David Rashi. Got so it. That was one cast. Got I, it. Then, then I transformed into those people left, and Tino Sana came in. Right. And, and did uh, Bet? So you worked with Betty too. Yes. Then it would. Then Betty came in. Right. When Eugenie left. Did Betty play characters that were the girlfriend and all that? I mean, you know. No. Right. Betty was this <clears throat> breath of fresh air who was tough. Right. She was like, "Dah, stop." <laughs> It's all bullshit. Fuck this. Am I allowed to swear? Oh, know. yeah. I've been swearing. Um, <laughs> she, uh, I mean, she would go toe to toe where, you know, like someone like uh, Judy Morgan right. would be so sweet. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. She was like the classic uh, Elaine May type where you were like, okay, yeah, all right. Whereas Betty would like, fuck that, you know. So I remember doing a scene where we, it was a, a police scene. But she played which on Hill Street Blues for so long, too. She was a cop. I was a cop. And the, it, the, the, the first part of the scene was uh, the girl was, was reporting a rape or something, you know. And I was being insensitive, you know, but the guy was being insensitive. And then David comes in, David Rashi. I was raped. And then Betty's like, all right, I'll take this. <laughs> like, what? Wait a minute. You know, and it was like a total, total reverse. And she just, you know, whatever part, you know, she was, she, we was, she was breaking the mold. I don't think that she gets enough credit. I really don't think that she gets that she gets enough credit because I look at her and there's a direct line between her and Tina Fey for me, or, or her certainly her and Bonnie Hunt yes. for me as well. Where I'm talking about Second City alum, where you go, those were balls out. Like at that time, there was nobody like her. No, and the other person was Eugenie Ross Lemming, right? Who was very bright, very strong. Yet she still preferred playing feminine. I, I believe Betty that was she, not afraid to play grotesque and just as tough and ugly or whatever as right. a guy. And I don't have to be attractive. I'm going for the bit. I'm going for the joke. And and you're right. She did sort of break that. It for a woman to sit in an audience and to watch somebody like Betty Thomas, a young woman sitting in an audience, to watch somebody on stage like Betty Thomas, that's got to go, wait a minute, I could do that. Mm -hmm. I could do that. Mm -hmm. because that was always the fun of Second City. We, all of us at one point sat in the audience and either said, I could do that or... I want to do that. I sat in the audience and thought, I could never do that, which is so funny. I was the other guy. I was like, how do you get that job? I don't know how to get that job. How do you get... No one does that. Oh, and my cat, you know, the cast that I saw was George Went and um, uh, Shelley Long and, you know, later Danny Breen and... Uh, okay, those guys had just... Re those are, that was my... Re they replaced my cast. That's, those, that was the first cast that I saw. Uh, that's so funny because you're so good. Uh, everyone, I, part of the magic was they made it look so easy and they looked like they were having fun. And for that time that you have in the audience and you see them up there 
and you're taken away to wherever they take you through the magic of Second City Stage, and it's so enjoyable, and you don't realize how hard they work to make it look easy. Right. And you go, I want to, I want to do that. Well, Don DePolo, the late great Don DePolo, mm-hmm. and I were sitting in the theater, watching probably <clears throat> Murphy Dunn's cast, mm-hmm. and uh, God, we turned to each that. other and say, I want to do that. Right. And somehow we were supposed to go in together, do the workshops, start the workshops together. Who taught it, Dell? Uh, no, it was uh, Joe Forsberg was uh-huh. doing the work- workshops then, who, who was a did... big student of Viola Spoler. Right. She was like the first. Players Workshop, she opened Players Workshop. Players Workshop, and she was like one of the first people anointed by Viola to say, well, you're doing my system. Right. And a lot of us went through, Harold's cast, Fisher, all those guys, they all went through Joe's teaching right. before they came to Dell. Right. So it was as if we got the best of both worlds, the classic Viola Spolin training, and then, okay, here's Dell with, all right, we're doing long form. We're going to do it with rules. We're going to change some rules here. Right, you know, right. Uh, everything is a game. You right. Know. Uh, you're, if you can live your life, is your life written, Stahl? <laughs> well, no. So you improvise it every day. Yes. Well, if you can live, you can improvise. That's the clearest I've ever heard that put. Because people go, wait a minute, I don't know how to improvise. You're fucking improvising your life every day. Every day you're improvising your life. So, and at that time, like, I look at that time and I look at the time that I was there as well because there was, there was Players Workshop, there was Second City, there was uh, Improv Olympic. Mm-hmm. That was it. That was it. That was it. And it exploded, didn't it? I, that's when I got there. Was when it when it exploded right at that time, and that was uh, you know that was the Pasquese and um, Tim Meadows and all those guys. Well, Pasquese and Joel Murray and and Dell doing all that stuff that he right. did with the you know improvise a, a play and created through improvisation. Um, but at that time, nobody was doing that, and it was just so exciting. And now. I have this podcast where I in, where I in, interview. I got to tell you, maybe you'll be on the show one day. Um, I have this podcast where I interview people, and I go across the world, literally, Jim, across the world, teaching this. So cool! That's so cool. It and it never would have exploded. It never would have happened had Bernie not fired Dell, because Dell loved to. Mm-hmm. Uh, he liked uh, his classes. Bernie, Bernie was the producer of Second City. Yeah, Bernie was the producer. Bernie and Dell was a director at Second City. Uh, owned it. Um, and then Dell uh, came in as a director. And Dell would have classes. And the classes would be successful. And they would want to perform. The students. The students would want to keep going. Right. But they had no place. Well, as soon as Dell was let go, all his former students started grabbing him like, Hey, let's say, what if we open a theater? What if we do the thing? And then Dell, I remember Dell telling me one day, he said, yeah, I like this. I, I, I do a class for a while, and, and then I start a group. I'm birthing all these groups. And he did. It was like, it was magic. And I feel like Chicago, but then again, Chicago was, was always experimental that way. Because Second City started because of the University of Chicago. Right. And if, if the University of Chicago wasn't progressive, it never would have started. All the people that came from there, and you look at the minds, and and uh, you know Severin Darden and uh, 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 Mike Nichols and Elaine Lane, May, right. and uh, and then you got uh, Eugene Trubnik and uh, Mina Kolb, right? And uh, Severin, uh, um, oh, 
uh, Alan Arkin. Alan Arkin. Alan Arkin uh, and uh, Barbara, Har- Barbara Harris. Harris. Barbara yeah. Harris. And uh, um, come on, man, right? Now, someone who is underappreciated, and I would love to know the story, is Brave New Workshop in Minneapolis. Yes, those people. And I, I was looking at their history, and I went, wow. Right, Dudley Riggs. Dudley Riggs, you guys started almost spontaneously with Second City. Right. And I went, how did that happen? Right. I would love to know the story. You must go and find the story. And was there a cross-pollination? I know, I know those people? people. I know the people that own that. And they are... Because if you look at the history of, that, of, of Dudley, I think technically he's older. Um, I think so, too. Because Second City started as the Compass Players. Right. And then it went to St. Louis, because then yes. it disappeared for a while. Right. And then it came back, and Bernie brought it back. Right. To, and with David sh- Shepard and all that stuff going on there. Yeah. Right? So, but Dudley, he was there. In, in, in Minneapolis. In, in Minneapolis. Uh, uh, Michael Gelman. You know Michael, of course. Yes. Uh, I think Michael was a Dudley, uh, did Dudley Riggs. Uh, Annie Ryerson was also. Right. Uh, right. Pat Proft was. Right. And, um, See, that, I think that there's, I think that there's a story in certainly the Chinese laundry era of Second City. Right. I think there's clearly a story of that. Um, I don't know why anybody hasn't done that. There's also, I had um, uh, Gottlieb, Carl Gottlieb here. And Carl talks about the committee and those days in San Francisco, the heady, passionate days. And that story hasn't been told. That story has not been told. And I think it's just so interesting. Another group that would never have been had Bernie not fired them. (laughs) Right. The committee. (laughs) The committee. Right. Because they were, uh, they felt disenfranchised. They felt like, wait a second, we should be in. We should be in charge, you know. Right. But you look <laughs> at the, the, the Chicago and San Francisco, the scene at that time, the San Francisco scene, which got the committee and got, I mean, just so, like the jazz world that was happening over there and the theater world that was happening over there and how it, it's very similar to Chicago. It's very, very similar to Chicago. Um, and, what, and, and, then you, and then you got, you know, going back to Robin, coming from there. That, that oh, place. Yes. yes, because he did, he was working out with the committee at the very end. Uh, the wing of the committee. Uh, he was in, uh, I think Anna Mathias said that she was his first improvisation teacher, believe it or not. So here was this young guy from Juilliard. From Juilliard. Yeah. From Juilliard. Yeah. Go figure that. Go figure that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The training. And people go, I don't know, you know, I'm not, I, and I think that these days what's happening is, and again, Nothing you could say about it because it is what it is. But the majority of improvisers that I know have never taken an acting class. That's fascinating because what I Dell was was did a cool thing when we were in his workshops. Uh, he he's he sort of uh, like he would poll the room and he would figure out who had acting experience, and then the other people he would call uh, street people, right? And then he said, okay, you actors, I'm going to have to teach you how to be street. And my street people, I'm going to teach you how to act. You two, you're going to meet in the middle because we're all going to improvise. And I found that fascinating because the actors who had a lot of acting training 
were a little bit hung up on acting and not being in the moment and improvising. Right. It was a little bit too much of their brain was used up on acting. <laughs> and the street people uh, uh, were very good at improvising, but a little weak on playing that the reality of the moment, some of the, rea- you know, some of the acting chop things. And it was so much fun to watch the two come into alignment through the course of one of his classes. And by the end, you'd go like, wow, there's a nice ensemble there. Right. He looked at things, he pulled the frame back and really took a look at elements that most people don't take a look or hadn't prior to that taken a look at. The, the, like the idea of background, the idea of inspiration, the idea of, like he would come in and go, oh, I was thinking about Paisley today and I thought maybe we'll work on Paisley. And you're like, what the fuck is Paisley? But I am here because you are going to yeah. say, and we're all here to say, let's try that out. And let's see what happens. Because I remember we did a lot of his exercises became shows. Like the one I remember was the pause. Uh, you, we'd do the scene, and you couldn't speak right away. You had to pause, and you had to think. And you were we were told not your first choice, not your second choice, third choice. Then you could speak, and that became right a show right right uh, uh, <laughs> right then there was one where um uh like i tell you who you are you tell me who i am and um uh we would do uh another one where it was uh we were all supportive of one person it was uh, for some weird reason we would pick one person mm-hmm. you know okay it's his story we're doing the and so that became a form of... I clearly remember I remember him playing with those things. I remember him, like two characters, two actors standing, one on the other, and each one of them gives a gift of, of uh, like, you're wearing a hat, you're wearing, you have a toupee, you're wearing this, you're wearing that, you're wearing this, you're wearing this, you're wearing this, you're wearing this, and then, and then someone, a third person saying, where are they? And they would do, and that was the beginning of the scene at that moment. But that was Adele... That was yeah. a Dell game. I was, I'm very inspired by the idea of one person, five people supporting that one person. That is awesome. I'm going to do that today in my drop-in class. Um, that and it's because for me, Dell was all about the ensemble. Yes, yes, and we That's, did win. A, we won a Jeff or Chicago Award for best ensemble. Right. Yeah, because that was because of Dell. Do you remember a moment? But you know what? I look back and there's something about. I, I, I interrupted. There's something old school that I feel is missing at Second City. Uh, Jim Fisher's cast was very, very good at group scenes. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons was uh, they made an agreement to play the game, enter with a purpose, because they all went through players' workshop. Mm-hmm. So that you two people would start the scene and then someone would enter with a purpose. Right. And then the purpose being what? What is the purpose? I have to get it, I have to get stamps. Whatever the purpose is of the scene. Uh-huh. So if there was a scene of two people in an office setting, mm-hmm. then someone would enter, okay, the, the sensitivity training meeting is going to be today. Got it. And then somebody walks in and they say, they talk about maybe uh, there's, there's a relationship problem. Mm-hmm. And then the next, the boss comes in. Got it. And then here comes the trainer. Got it. Well, they got so good at everybody got, gets their spotlight. You have a group. Okay, we are all going to allow you to have your moment. Mm-hmm. Then you had your moment. Now we're going to allow the next person. Who enters? Who enters, have their moment. Uh-huh. Boom, 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 boom. Then as the scene develops, you could go, boom, as like a bouncing ball. 
to person to person, and there's this illusion that, oh yeah, blah, 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 blah. His, his cast came up with so many great group scenes. Jim's cast. Over, Jim Fisher's uh-huh. cast, Harold Ramis's cast, because they were so generous. Whereas later, it's all two people scenes. The, I love people. that word, generous. I love that word. I love that um, word. But the other thing now I noticed, I don't know how at what point it stopped. My cast did it. Uh, we would take suggestions from the audience. We would write them down. We would go backstage. Right. We would come up with something. Right. We would come out. And now on your suggestion, right. I can't get a place to park. We take you to yeah. Lincoln Park Street. Blah, blah. And we would play and experiment and find scenes that then we would later workshop. Mm-hmm. Now, they sort of herald, and then when it's time for a new show, they gotta write it, they gotta da 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 And I, and they don't, I feel like they don't get the zeitgeist of the audience anymore. I, I directed a show, so I came out here in 95. Then, I, I, then they hired me to direct a main stage show in 2000 in Chicago. And I come back with the old school, we take suggestions at the end, we write them down, we go in the back, we put up the list, we have the chalkboard, we say, what call it out and cast it, right? And that's what you call it out, um, I'll take blah, 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 you're, uh, Carla, you're gonna be in it, and Nancy and you and I are gonna be in it, and they go and get the costumes, right? And then the, 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 the stage manager puts that running order together, you have a game here, a game here, a game here, five scenes, bim, bam, boom, improv set. I brought that in, and everybody, and I'm like, that's the way we're doing it. And people are looking and going, I have no idea what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. And they fought me tooth and nail on that show. They fought me in a way that I thought, I, I felt like I was being gaslighted. I felt like, what the fuck just happened? Wow. So I look at that. I mean, we workshopped with Dell. Mm-hmm. We would literally workshop, taking suggestions, Okay, now you have a suggestion. Okay, now what are you going to do? Right. And his and he had great suggestions right. of don't think right away about uh, I have a clever idea. Think what do you feel about it? Oh, Does it make yeah. You feel right. All right, now da 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 da. And then of course you would rely on improvisation to go off your great idea you had when you started. And of course somebody is allowed to enter and play with you. And, and of course, and of course, and of course you're allowed to bring back an idea. Someone's you can't get a parking place. Remember that bit we did uh, two weeks ago. What if we did it this? And what if so and so did it? Boom. That was the fun. That was the fun. I look at the people now at Second City, and they they're like standing on stage, a little embarrassed. Yeah. Okay. Because you did a no great one's show. The, the, because right now it's so thinky, it's not feely. Yes. Yes. And they're not doing characters. No. Um, and I look at that and I go, does does ETC do it the old way or they do it the new way? Everybody's doing it that way. And what happened, I think, was that one particular show, uh, Pinata Full of Bees, right. which changed everything. And I wanted to go, and, and, and so the scenes stopped being scene blackout, I mean, scene lights out, blackout, lights out, relationship scene, and now it's like scene floating into scene, going into now, floating into that. The show, that's the bees show. Here's an interesting bit of uh, nostalgia. Fisher's cast with Eugenie, John Belushi, Joe Flaherty, Harold Ramis. What a bad crew that was. Um, They did a show in which the first act was one long scene. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And things flowed into each other. Mm. And it was, and things were brought back. Mm -hmm. Characters were brought back. And then at the end of that first act, 
Then the second act was a traditional Second City Second ah. Act. Flash forward, um, again, a, a, about a year before the Bees show. Pinata full of Bees. Uh, Fisher and I were hired to work with Second City to do a pilot for CBS. And we're flying between Chicago and Toronto. And then we come up to Toronto. And we're looking at all this material, and we're trying to figure out, well, what scene do we want to pick? We were initially going, we're going to pick a scene. That's already that, been done. Yeah, that, that's been done, and we're going to turn that into either a sitcom or whatever. And then the inspiration hit, wait a minute. What if we looked at this scene and this scene and this scene and the one with Mike Myers? Right. And we said, let's start with the four characters of Mike Myers and Dana and, uh, and we say, we're going to track them through the day. And in this scene with the family that like, they're like the, the dregs of the gene pool family where he answers the phone and he picks up the iron to his head. <laughs> the Toronto, funny Toronto I scene. remember that. I haven't thought about that scene that in a while. That right. was one of the guy's family. Uh-huh. And then so-and-so's boss is the fucker scene. And right. That, so, we, so we did... The fucker scene was with... Hall. Rick Hall? No, no, no. Uh, um, uh, uh, not Rick Hall. Rich Hall. Uh, Rich Hall. Rich Hall. Rich. He, he you was... You can't the, fuck with a fucker. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was the boss. He was Mike Myers' boss in that scene. So... Oh, oh when you recorded it, but in Chicago, so that was... Um, that was that was Rich, yeah. Yeah. That was, that was his scene. So when we did it, we connected the dots. So it was one long hour show mm-hmm. tracking these people, but we each scene was a Second City scene. Mm-hmm. And then I go, lo and behold, he goes this, oh, the bees show... And I went like, well, yeah, yeah, we did that. Right. <laughs> but they did. Now they're doing it on the stage. Right, right. But this transforming, what's weird is when I remember the show, I distinctly remember the show. Bernie was directing and it was Eugenie and John and they were doing this scene and he was French or something. They didn't have an ending to the damn thing. Jim was, was funny. Jim was French. Um, or John. John Belushi was French and mm-hmm. Eugenie was French. And, mm-hmm. Maybe or maybe John was doing uh, maybe John was doing Truman Capote at the time. I don't know, but anyway, they didn't have an ending. So Bernie came up with, "Well, why don't we do this? We'll just we'll break it there. We'll have so and so come in." And then I remember Joe had a funny scene where he comes home and he goes, "Honey, I'm home," and the wife comes out and she's she and he punches him and da 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 and he does this whole thing and. Tries to strangle him and he kicks her arm and he kind of faces each other and he goes, boy, you're in an ugly mood. <laughs> and then big laugh, freeze. And then the other scene starts. So we did, and then we brought that back. Right. We brought the people, scenes were, things were cross-pollinated. But I remember you didn't get as big an audience response from the transition right. as you did from the blackout. Right. And it was almost as if the blackout... We had time to buzz in the audience. Hi, right. kind of say, oh, it was a funny day. Okay. Right, 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 right. What's going to happen next? Right, right, right. So it turned into a play. Yes. Yes. And it stopped being cabaret, and it turned into it stopped being a nightclub, and it became a play. Um, what was the show? The Mister Show. Remember the Mister Show? No, Mister Show. Mister Show. Mister Show. Very With similar. Kirk and, and yeah, uh, very, right, he and did David a very Cross. similar thing. Right. With right. the sketches that connected and yeah. went through. Yeah. Boy, uh, there's some good shit in that show. Yeah. There's some really good stuff in that show. We're going to have to stop. All right. Because this is the longest podcast I've done. 
really exciting. Where you can edit the bad parts out. <laughs> the pauses. Thank you so much, man. Right. That's so great. Thank you for listening to ADD Comedy. For Dave Rosowski, I'm Ian Foley. For more information on Dave, you can go to his website at www.davidrosowski.com or follow Dave on Twitter at drosowski.